Good morning. Glad you're here with us this morning. If you're new with us, you're a guest, welcome. Glad you're here. Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, we are glad that you're with us. You should know if you're new with us, if it's been a while since you've been with us, we are making way through a series on the book of Philippians. Here at Free Money Free, we like to take books of the Bible and preach through them verse by verse. And the reason, we, why, the reason why we do that is because we believe that the Bible really is the Word of God. As much as possible, we want the Word of God to set the agenda. So this morning, that means we land at the end of chapter 3 in Philippians, Philippians 3, 17 and 21. Let me pray and then we'll get to it. Father, we do thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your word. We pray this morning that we would receive it gladly, that our hearts would be ready to hear from you. We know that there's a lot going on in the world around us. We know that there are people in this room who are just going through a lot personally. And in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the discouragement, in the midst of the busyness, we pray that you would speak to us clearly through your word. You meet us where we are that you'd speak to us, and that in your kindness to us, you would help us to see the all-surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Lord, it's our prayer that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts, and that you would allow us to receive your word joyfully, and to be transformed by it, and to be different because we've read it. So Lord, please minister to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the first time I ever walked into the weight room at Sheraton High School was one of the most terrifying moments of my life, or at least it felt like it at the time. I think I was in seventh grade, and if I had to guess, I was probably five foot tall and maybe 90 pounds if I stuffed a bunch of rocks into my pockets. I was not a big kid. And I know this will be hard to believe given the current bulkiness of my physique, but I was not strong either. Compared to my peers, I was weak. And compared to the high schoolers in the room, I was downright feeble. And to top it all off, I had no idea how to actually lift weights. Now, of course, I understood the basic concept of weightlifting. You're lifting weights. But in terms of proper form, I was absolutely clueless. And so when you put all those factors together, you can begin to understand why I was so scared that morning. I was stepping into a high school weight room amidst the high school giants. And I was doing so as a puny seventh grader who had zero clue how to do anything. It was terrifying. But thankfully, that morning... And many mornings after, Coach Maimons, the high school football coach, took me under his wing and taught me how to lift weights. And he did so by inviting me to lift with him. He would lift the weights and model for me what I was supposed to do, and then in turn, he would turn me loose. He would spot me. He would correct my form. He would do whatever it could to help me be successful. And because of his example and the way in which he modeled proper technique, over time, I became a respectable weightlifter. Now, don't get me wrong here. By the time I graduated high school, I didn't look like the rock, obviously. But by my senior year... I was able to actually hold my own. And I would attribute that in large part to Coach Maimons. He didn't just tell me to lift weights, although he did that, but more importantly, he showed me how to do it. And as I imitated him and followed his example, I was able to do things I never would have thought possible that first morning I stepped in the weight room. Coach Maimons' example made all the difference. Now, having said all that, I suppose it's possible that some of you have a similar weightlifting story in your background. Maybe you walked in terrified and someone took you under the wing and they helped you. That's possible. But even if you don't have that experience in the weight room, I'm guessing you can at least relate to the importance of having a Coach Maimons in your life. Maybe for you it wasn't weightlifting. Instead, it was your dad teaching you how to change the oil in your car, getting under the car with you and modeling it for you. Or maybe it's your mom teaching you how to tie your shoes, showing you how to do it on her own shoes, and then teaching you how to do it. Or maybe it's a teacher sitting down with you and walking you patiently through a difficult math problem so you can figure out how you actually solve it. Or maybe it's your grandma inviting you into the process that she made the best chocolate chip cookies of all time and passed that skill on to you. The point is, you don't need to have had a weight room experience to understand the importance of a Coach Maimons. 
All of us need people in our lives who can demonstrate and model for us, this is how you do something. And as much as that's important for daily tasks, like changing the oil in your car or tying your shoes or weightlifting, I would argue it's even more important as it relates to our spiritual lives. How do we know what it looks like to live out our Christian faith in the workplace? How do we know what it looks like to be a godly husband or father, mother or wife? How do we know what it looks like to persevere in Christ through trials? Well, I would argue that we know because people model for us. Quite simply, if we want to be a faithful follower of Christ, I'm convinced we need examples in our life of what it looks like to actually follow Jesus. And I think it's clear in our passage today, the Apostle Paul would agree with that. Because in our passage today, Paul challenges the Philippians to imitate his example and to imitate the example of others who are seeking after Jesus. And so my hope this morning is that as Paul challenges the Philippians to do that, to follow his example, we would recognize our own need for godly role models. Because the truth is, if we want to grow in Christ and follow him, we need people around us who show us this is what it looks like. So that said, let's get to it. Philippians 3, 17 to 21. If you're physically able, I'm going to ask you to stand here out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Standing is just a simple way we can remind ourselves this is the word of God as such as do our attention. So Philippians 3, 17 to 21. The word of God says this beginning in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It's the word of God. You may be seated. So the main command of the passage today is found in the first verse, verse 17. Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So in this verse, Paul is urging the Philippians to follow his example and to keep their eyes on others who are walking according to the truth of the gospel also. Essentially, Paul is saying the same thing that we see him saying repeatedly throughout the New Testament, perhaps most notably in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, follow me as I follow the example of Christ. And now here he has not only just to follow him, but also to follow others who are walking according to the example of Christ. So that's the main charge of the passage. Look for those who are following Jesus and then model their way of living. Then in the rest of the passage, what Paul does, I think in verses 18 through 21, is simply tell us why we should look for godly examples to follow. The first reason he mentions is in verse 18 and 19. And the first reason is simply many around us are living for the things of this world and walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Look at verses 18 and 19. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So don't miss the connection here between verse 17, the main command, and what Paul's saying in verses 18 and 19. What he says is, it's because many are walking as enemies of the cross. It's because many are looking and living for the things of this world that we should find godly role models so we can follow their example. In other words, there are a lot of bad examples around us. A lot of people living for the wrong things, headed towards destruction. And therefore, we need godly role models. 
It's imperative that we find people who are not living for the things of this world, but instead living for the things of heaven. And we are to follow their example. So that's one of the reasons why the Philippians are to look to Paul and others following Christ. The second reason is found in verses 20 and 21. But as followers of Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So again, don't miss the connection between the main command, verse 17, and what Paul is saying in verses 20 and 21. It's because we're citizens of heaven, it's because we're waiting for a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies, that we want to live for Jesus now. And to do that, we need godly role models who can show us what this looks like. We need other believers in our life who will show us this is what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom. So that's the basic sense of the passage. Verse 17, the main command, follow my example, Paul says, and the example of others who are following Jesus. And do this because those around us are not doing this and because we're citizens of heaven. Now, having said all that, the challenge for us as always this morning is not just that we understand the meaning of the passage, that's step one, but secondly, that we understand that this is the word of God and it's applicable for our daily lives. In other words, it's important that we don't just merely understand what Paul is saying to the Philippians. We're not just gathering historical facts here. What did Paul say to the Philippians? That's important that we understand that, but what we need to understand is that because this is God's word, what Paul says here has relevance for us. More specifically, I'm going to argue this morning that there are two reminders that we have in this passage that are applicable for our daily lives. So I want to walk through those reminders which are tied to what we just talked about. And at the end, I'm going to come back and ask two follow-up questions related to the main command. All right, so that's where we're headed. We're trying to figure out how does this apply to us? All right, so two reminders and then two follow-up application questions. So reminder number one, again taken from the text here, the first reminder is simply this. Many around us have their minds set on earthly things. And our living is enemies of the cross. Verses 18 and 19, one more time. Verse 18, For many of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now the context here would suggest that Paul is likely talking about a group of people who claim to be Christians, and yet they were not living in step with the gospel. And one of the reasons why I think that's the case, why I would say he's talking about a group that claim to be Christians, is because of the language he uses in verse 18. Specifically, Paul speaks of his tears as he writes about this group. Now, it's certainly possible that Paul would be weeping over those who never knew Christ and never claimed to know Christ. But given the pattern of the rest of the New Testament, and specifically Paul's writings in the New Testament, it seems more likely he's weeping here because these are people who claim to be Christians. And yet they were clearly not walking in step with the gospel. Now the fact that Paul notes his tears and wants us to know and the Philippians to know about his tears is worth noting. In verses 18 and 19, it's clear he's condemning this group. But it's also clear he's not happy or rejoicing in his condemnation. On the contrary, he's condemning them in tears. And given the world we live in, I think that's worth noting. Specifically, given the social media world that we live in, in which people delight to go scorched earth on other people and take joy in doing so. It's worth noting that as Paul condemns, he does so in tears. As author D.A. Carson says in reference to this passage, for our part, we must not become people who denounce but do not weep. Now, Carson points out also, neither should we become people who weep but never denounce. In other words, there's a ditch on both sides of the road here. We can be the type of people who love condemning others and don't weep as we do it. 
But on the other hand, we can be the type of people who never point out that something's wrong to do. And Carson's saying we should avoid the ditch on both sides. And in this case, Paul avoids that ditch. He weeps, but he also denounces. And make no mistake, he does denounce her, and he warns about the actions of this group. In verses 18 to 19, he gives a five-fold description of them, and it's clear that he's very concerned about them. Verse 18, he describes them as enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, he says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame, and their minds are set on earthly things. Now, admittedly, some of those descriptions are maybe not how we would talk, and yet I think the large point is easy to understand here. The group of people that Paul was warning about, he's saying, were not living in step with the crucifixion of cross, the crucifixion of Christ. They were not living for Jesus. They were not living in light of the fact Jesus had died on the cross for sin. Instead, they were living for their own pleasure, making gods of their belly. They were boasting in things they ought to have been ashamed of. They're glorying in their shame. And they were living for the things of this world. And because they were doing this, Paul says their end is destruction. Now, what we need to understand this morning is that many people around us today are living in the exact same way. And that's where this passage becomes relevant. It's not just people living back then who live this way. It's people today. In fact, think about this. Most people in Fremont, Nebraska, claim to be Christians. But as evidenced by the warning here that Paul is giving, just because a person claims to be a Christian doesn't mean anything. The question is, have they actually trusted in Christ? And if they've trusted in Christ, they'll be evident in that they're living for the things of Christ. If your neighbor next door professes to be a Christian, and yet they've set their minds on earthly things, living for money and power and achievements and their resume, well, there's reason to be concerned about the genuineness of their profession. Because those who truly know Christ will want to live for Christ. And they will want to live for the things to come, not the things of this earth. Now, in saying that, here's the danger of our neighbor living in that way. Or the danger of the people around us living in that way. Over time, that begins to rub off on us. In fact, that's again the connection here. Paul, in verse 17, talks about imitating him. And then in verses 18 and 19, he warns of the danger of people living this way. The connection is this. As we are surrounded by people living in a certain way, we will have a pull towards them. And thus, we need an example showing us the better way. Because hear this. When you're surrounded by a group of people not living for Christ, it's only natural over time that you might start to become more like them. So to give you an example of what I'm talking about, let me give you an example of, of when we lived in Texas. As most of you knew, I grew up in Iowa. But after I graduated from seminary, we spent five years living in Texas. Now, here's the thing. Even living in Texas, I still clung to my Iowa roots. I didn't become a full-out Texan. You'll be happy to know. I did not become a Longhorns fan. I'm a Christian, after all. I didn't wear a cowboy hat or cowboy boots. I didn't get a tattoo of the Texas flag. But even still, Texas did rub off on us. My wife actually developed a bit of a southern twang. In fact, every once in a while, I'll come out again, I'll go, oh, there's Texas, Tanya. And we both started to incorporate y'all into our language a lot more. We started drinking sweet tea, of all things. And our kids, being young at the time, started to refer to us as mommy and daddy, which is a very Texas thing to do. So whether we wanted to or not, Texas rubbed off on us. And sometimes, get this, we weren't even aware of it. In fact, when we moved here, someone noticed our kids were still calling us mommy and daddy. And a dear brother in Christ, and I greatly appreciate him for this, he pulled me aside and goes, that's kind of weird. In the Midwest, it's mom and dad. And you know what? He was absolutely right. In the Midwest, it is mom and dad, not mommy and daddy. But Texas had affected us so much that we didn't even notice how strange it was in our culture. It had rubbed off on us. Now, I tell you all that to say this. When everyone around you is living in a certain way, 
It's only natural over time it begins to rub off on you. And you start to become more like those people even if you don't notice it. Now when it's Texas rubbing off on you, it's usually not that big of a deal. Unless you're philosophically opposed to sweet tea or something like that. But when it's enemies of the cross of Christ rubbing off on you, well, that's dangerous. I think that's what Paul's warning about here. He's saying many around you Philippians are claiming to be Christians, yet they're not actually living for Christ. Instead, they're living for their own bellies. They're seeking their own pleasure. They're seeking the things that they want. And what Paul's saying is you need an example to show you that's not the way to go. There is a better way, and it's not living for the things of this world. It's living for the kingdom to come. Which brings us to reminder number two here. As followers of Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. Again, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So clearly there's a contrast here in Paul's mind between the people being described in verses 18 and 19 and the people he's talking about in verses 20 and 21. Those in 18 and 19 are living to fill their bellies. They're taking pride in their sin. They set their minds on earthly things. But what he's saying in verses 20 and 21 is those who are actually Christians have a different mindset. We're not living for the things of this earth. We're living for the world to come because our citizenship is in heaven. That language of citizenship is instructive. When I went on a mission trip to Turkey in the summer of 2001, one of the last things they explained to us before we went out to the mission field is what to do if you got in trouble, and specifically that you need to contact the U.S. Embassy. Apparently, during this time period, and I would guess maybe even now, it was not uncommon for missionaries in Turkey to run in trouble with the law. And the first thing you need to do if that happened is contact your embassy. Because as a U.S. citizen, in my case, I had certain rights and privileges that might help to protect me if I ran into trouble. So as they gave those final instructions, they were not so subtly, in fact, they were directly telling us, listen, you may be living in Turkey for a while, but don't forget where your true citizenship is. If you get in trouble, you need to remember you are a citizen of the United States. And I'll say this, even though I was in Turkey for a month, I never once thought of myself as a Turkish citizen. And why would I? I was just passing through. My true citizenship was here in the United States. In the same way, I would say this, those of us who are in Christ hear this, we are just passing through. In fact, comparatively, the amount of time that we'll be on this earth in comparison to eternity is much shorter than my month in Turkey compared to the rest of my life. In other words, this is a really small time here. Our citizenship is somewhere else. It's not on this earth. It's not even here in the United States. And in saying that, I think we can acknowledge something. God's timing is pretty awesome. As you might have known, there was an election this week. And both before and after the election, on both sides of the aisle, I noticed there are a lot of people losing their minds, analyzing election results, jumping to all kinds of conclusions. But in his kindness toward us, God wanted to remind us this week, your citizenship is not in the United States. At least not ultimately. Your citizenship is in heaven. And listen, we already know who won the election there because there is no election. It's the same king who's been on the throne forever and will be on the throne forever. It's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the prince of peace, Jesus Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I can assure you, and in fact, I can promise you that his plan and his purposes and his reign and rule were not thwarted at all by any election results this week. 
He is still the king. And because he's the king, it's going to be okay. And because our citizenship is in heaven, we don't need to lose our minds every time things get a little wonky here. Instead, we fix our eyes on what's to come. We await a glorious Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. By the way, that language of awaiting a Savior who will transform our bodies from our lowly bodies into a glorious body, that is especially encouraging language given the fact that we live in a world in which bodies decay and death is inevitable. The last three and a half years, our family has been reminded acutely that our bodies are lowly and feeble and weak. With my wife right now, it seems like there is a new malady that afflicts her body every single day. And I suspect some of you can relate because your body has failed you or the body of someone you love has failed them. And if that's the case, I can only imagine that the words of Philippians 3 this morning are particularly sweet. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. By the way, this is going to happen. In fact, Paul tells us here in Philippians 3, by the same power by which Jesus subjected all things to himself, in other words, by the same power in which he is the king of everything, he is going to transform our body. It's going to happen. And so if you are a Christian, know this, the best is still to come. It's not here. It's in the world to come. The world we live in now is broken. Our bodies are broken, decaying. But hear this, our hope is not in this world. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. My question for you is, are you living that way? If you claim to be a Christian, are you living like your citizenship is in heaven? Again, when I was in Turkey, I didn't pretend to be Turkish. I was Turkey, but make no mistake about it, I was still an American. I dressed like an American. I talked like an American. I thought like an American. And I'm sure it was obvious to everyone who encountered me in Turkey, he's not from around here. In the same way, we should not live like those around us because our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We should live for the kingdom of God rather than living for money or achievements or pleasure or resume building things as most in the world are doing. We should live for the glory of God and the joy of knowing Jesus more. Our lives should reflect our true citizenship. It should be obvious to those around us, oh, he's not from here, or she's not from here. Oh, it's clear they're just different. I would hope people would say that of us because we have a different citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven, and that should be reflected in the way that we live. Now, obviously, doing that is much easier said than done, which brings us back now full circle to the beginning of the passage. The reason why we need godly examples is because living for the kingdom to come is hard, it's especially hard when people around us are living differently. That's why we need godly examples to imitate. And so that brings me to the two follow-up questions from verse 17. Follow-up question number one, do you have godly examples in your life that you're following? Do you have godly examples in your life that you're following? Again, to use the example from the beginning, when I first started lifting weights, I had no clue what I was doing, but it was Coach Maimons who showed me what to do. I needed an example. He provided it. As much as that was true for weightlifting or other things that we do on a day-to-day basis, we need the exact same thing spiritually. We need godly role models. I frequently tell people this, and I mean it. If you see Tanya or I doing something good in parenting or something good in our marriage or something good in our walk with Christ, you can be almost certain we learned it from someone else. As an example, let me talk about parenting here for just a second. We have a long ways to go to be good parents, but the things that we've done well, we've learned from others. 
Lee and Margaret Sexton, they taught us how to discipline young children. In fact, when we were over at their house, they walked us through. This is what we do. Brian and Jennifer Ever, they modeled for us what it looks like to lead family devotions. We sat in their living room as their teenagers listened, and they had family devotions. Jim and Beth Luby took us under their wing as they parented their teenage sons. I remember going to Village Inn with Jim, sitting down with his son who's a teenager, and him asking his son, what do you think it means to be a man, to grow in Christ? And I was part of that conversation. I got to see it modeled. Doug and Jamie Walter invited us in their home, let us participate as they interacted with their children and spoke freely about Jesus with them. And on and on the list could go. If there's any hint of godliness in our parenting, it's because we learned it from others. We saw it with our eyes. As the old phrase goes, more is caught than taught. And so it wasn't just that they taught us, they showed us. And as they showed us, we learned. The same could be said for our marriage or anything we are doing in our spiritual lives. If we're doing anything right, it's almost certainly because someone modeled it for us. And so my question for you is, do you have those types of models in your life? Now, I'm asking that. I'm not asking, do you have models of people who show you how to be a better business person or how to make more money or how to get your kids more connected? That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, do you have people in your life who are modeling for you, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus? People who are inviting you into their lives so you can see what it looks like to be a godly spouse or a godly parent or a godly worker or someone who's just growing in Christ in general. As evidenced by Paul's command here in verse 17, we need examples like this. And if you don't have those examples in your life, if you don't have people modeling this for you where you're seeing it on a regular basis, let me encourage you to make an effort to find them. Get connected to a small group. We call them gospel community groups here so that you can build relationships with other believers. Or invite a couple over for dinner that's further down the road in their walk with Christ. Or if you meet someone on Sunday morning who's oozing a love for Jesus, get coffee or lunch with them and just ask them, what is it that makes you tick? And then as you grow in those relationships and as you see them living for Jesus, at some point you should want to imitate them. That is the next step, by the way. It's one thing to see it modeled. It's another to begin to imitate it. It was great that Brian and Jennifer Everett invited us into their house and showed us how to do family devotions. But at some point we needed to imitate that. We needed to do it in our own house. So listen, we need godly role models that we can imitate and follow as they follow Christ. And my question for you, the first question is simply, do you have those people in your life? But here's a second follow-up question for you. Are you living in such a way that you can be the example? That you can be the one pointing others to Christ and what it looks like to live for Jesus? In his book on the book of Philippians, D.A. Carson shares a powerful story from his college days. Carson and a friend started a Bible study for non-believers who were interested in spiritual things but did not yet know Christ. Before long, Carson, who was a freshman at the time, and his friend realized they were in over their head. The questions they were getting asked were just beyond their scope of understanding. And so they decided they needed to seek the help of a graduate student on campus named Dave. Dave was passionate about Christ, gifted in answering hard questions, and straightforward in his communication. And so it was that Carson took two of his more spiritually curious friends to Dave with the hope that Dave could straighten them out and give them the answers they were looking for. And it was Dave's interaction with one of those students that I found to be particularly compelling and particularly convicting. In fact, at this point, I'm just going to let Carson tell the story in his own words. Carson writes, Dave turned to the second student. Why did you come? The student replied, I come from what you people call a liberal home. We don't believe the way you do, but it's a good home, a happy home. My parents loved their children, disciplined us, set a good example, and encouraged us to be courteous, honorable, and hardworking. And for the life of me, I can't see that you people who think of yourselves as Christians are any better. Apart from a whole lot of abstract theology, what have you got that I haven't? Now let me pause for a second. 
If someone asked you that question, they say, I grew up in a good home. I had good examples, good parents. What have you got that I don't? What would be your response? Carson writes, because this is how Dave responded. This time I held my breath to see what Dave would say. He stared at the man for a few seconds, and then he simply said, watch me. I suppose my mouth dropped again, Carson writes. The student whose name was Rick said something like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Dave answered, watch me. Come and live with me for a month if you like. Be my guest. Watch what I do when I get up. Watch what I do when I'm on my own, how I work, how I use my time, how I talk with people, and what my values are. Come with me wherever I go. And at the end of the month, you tell me if there's any difference. I think I first read that example about 10 years ago. And I was challenged by it then, and I'm challenged by it again this morning. Could you say to someone, you want to know what difference Jesus makes? Watch me. Come live with me for a month. Watch the way I spend my free time. Watch the way I interact with my family. Watch the way I interact with people I don't know. And you will see Christ makes a difference. Watch me. It's a challenging response. Could you say the same thing? Are you following the example of Christ to the point that you could, like Paul, say, imitate me as I imitate Jesus? Let me try to make it a little more practical here. If you're a student, could you say to someone else in your school, you want to know what it's like to live for Jesus at this school? You want to know what it's like to, have a, to see the difference Christ makes? Just follow me around. Follow me around in the hallways. Follow me around after school. Watch what I do and you'll see Christ makes a difference. If you're a parent, could you tell other parents, you want to know what difference Christ makes in our parenting? Just watch us. You'll see the difference because Christ has transformed us. Now to be sure, none of us in this room could say, I'm the perfect example, follow me. Obviously, in our example, we're saying, follow me as I follow Christ, because it's Christ that's the ultimate example. But could we say, like Paul does here, join in imitating my example. Follow me as I follow Christ. Now, let me make a huge caveat here. It's impossible to say, be like Jesus and follow me if you don't first know Jesus. Non-Christians can live moral lives, but to be like Jesus and live for the sake of others is impossible apart from knowing Christ. And so if you don't know Christ, the lesson this morning is not be a better role model. The lesson is turn to Christ in saving faith. Recognize that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose three days later. And if you turn to him in saving faith, you can be rescued. And when you turn to him in saving faith, his spirit indwells you and will transform you. So that eventually you could hopefully say, be like me. But listen, if you know Jesus, then I would hope you could say to someone else, Follow me as I follow the example of Christ. Watch me. And if not, perhaps it's time to repent and reorient your life so that Christ really is your greatest priority. Now listen, we all need examples and role models in life in a variety of different areas. But we particularly need role models and examples who are following Jesus. I think the challenge for us in Philippians 3 is let's find those types of people. But I think the implied challenge in Philippians 3 is also let's be those type of people. Let's be the type of people who could earnestly say, follow me as I follow Christ. Watch me as I live for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're humbled by Paul's example here. And at first, what sounds like maybe a prideful statement, imitate me. In the end, we know is really Paul just saying, imitate me as I follow Jesus. It's about Christ. And we want to be the type of people who could say, like Paul says, Follow me as I follow the example of Christ. But to do that, we know it will require work of your spirit. So we pray that your spirit would be at work in us to transform us and change us. 
God, we know that there are many people around us living as enemies of the cross, living for the things of this world. Lord, please help us to not go down that path, but instead remind us that our citizenship is in heaven. Lord, we need your help to do this, and so we're asking for it this morning. Please help us to live in light of who we are in Jesus. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. So one of the things we like to do at this church is we like to pray together. We recognize that a lot of churches give lip service to prayer, but we want to actually do it because we recognize we cannot follow God on our own power. To actually follow Christ and become more like him is a work of the Spirit. As we're going to spend the next five minutes or so praying, I would encourage you to use this passage as your springboard to prayer, just to pick things out and run with it. If you want more specifics, you could just go to the end. And you could pray that we would live like citizens of the kingdom and that we would have a mindset of living for the kingdom. For that matter, if there's something else that God's putting on your heart, someone else that God's putting on your heart that you want to pray for, that's perfectly acceptable and good too. We just want to encourage you to pray. Pray in light of what we've heard this morning. Pray in light of what the Spirit's putting on your heart. If you want to pray with the people we came with, that's great. We have many people who do that. If you'd like to pray on your own, that's okay too. If you'd like to journal, great. We just want to spend about five minutes praying here because we recognize we need His help to do this. So let's pray. And then I'll close this down here in a few minutes.
Father, we know that our citizenship is indeed in heaven. We pray that you give us a mindset to live like that, that we would await the Savior, who would transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the same power by which he subjected all things to himself. We pray that we would wait for that with hope and expectation. We know that the world we live in is broken. We want to live for the kingdom to come. We want to live for you. We know that's hard because the world around us is living in a different way. Many around us are living as enemies of the cross of Christ, including, as suggested here in Philippians 3, many who claim to be Christians. And yet, Lord, we want to be different. I pray that you'd help us to find examples of people who are living differently and imitate them. And we pray that you would help us to live differently enough that we could say to others, follow us. Not because we're trying to draw attention to ourselves, but rather because the Spirit, your Spirit, is transforming us, and we want others to see it so that you can get the glory. God, would you please just be at work in us? We admit we have a long ways to go, but Lord, we're confident that by your Spirit we can get there. So please help us, Lord, to grow in our desire to live as citizens of the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. All right, one last thing here before we turn our attention to the benediction. This is the second Sunday of the month. On the second Sunday of the month, we take a benevolent offering. There's a basket located out in the foyer. The basket's here in the sanctuary for regular giving, but there's a benevolent offering. This is for those in our church who are just struggling financially. And if that's you, please let us know. We'd love to help you. We've been able to help a lot of people over the course of this last year, and we'd love to help you if that's you. If you'd like to contribute to that offering, though, the basket is out in the foyer. All right, our last benediction I'm going to have you stand for here is from Matthew chapter 6. I think in light of what we read about citizenship in heaven, I think Jesus' charge here in Matthew 6 is a fitting way to close. Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, or where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You're dismissed. Have a great week.